Uh, thank you so much, worship team. Great stuff. Great thinking on that uh, song and on the entire uh, set we have this morning. Thank you for singing. Uh, you lifted me up this morning already. Encouraged to be with you. Uh, if I didn't say it officially, for those who are visiting, I am Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. I'm just really glad to have you here. If you're listening online later, we're glad you're listening online later to this as well. Hey, you've caught us in part four of five of one of the strangest titled series I've ever done that we are calling Killing Chicken Little. It is not as vicious as it sounds, but the idea behind it, if you haven't been here yet, is that we want to take that voice of doubt and worry and anxiety that can rise up in us and create like a self-fulfilling prophecy of, of real doubt and trouble in our lives. We want to kill that voice. And it's not just built off of a popular children's story or folk tale. It actually is built off of Jesus' teaching. Um, he taught to his disciples and to his followers an incredible parable that's recounted in three of the Gospels, the parable of the soil or the seed, as some people know them. And if you've been with us, you know this, that the, the third seed is, there's four seeds that are dropped into different soils. And the third seed is dropped into soil in which Jesus says, hey, in that soil, the seed takes root and starts to grow, but there's thorns. And the thorns choke out the life of the seed. And the disciples are nodding their heads, ah, that sounds good, Jesus. And later they're like, Jesus, we have no idea what you were saying. Can you explain it to us? And he, and here's very interesting, he actually explains this parable. Most he does not, but this one, he actually explains. So there's no doubt what he was talking about. And what he says is the thorns are the worries and anxieties of life that choke this out, sow the seed, and then he says this, does not mature. And so what we want at Grace Point Church is people to become what we say here, fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. That's not a language unique to us, but what we want for all of the people who end up calling GPC their home or connecting to us in whatever season of life you're here, if you're here even just for a little bit, we want you in this little bit to grow in your faith. And so what we said is faith and worry are competitors for your soul. They're competitors for your growth. You cannot be a continuing and growing and vital follower of Jesus Christ and be languishing in all-consuming worry. So that at the beginning, like there's no one I think that you know who is both super godly, whom you respect for their spiritual advice, and is also a hyper-worrier. Like those two don't go in the same person because faith and worry are competitors for the soul. They don't get along well. And anxiety wants to angle out and push out and elbow out the seed of faith in your soul and in your heart. And so this is what we're getting after in this series. It's not just about a cute children's story. It's about the heart of Jesus' teaching. If you want to grow... You have to step into worry and anxiety and call it what it is. And so we've been dropped into not just Jesus' teaching, but Paul's writing. The Apostle Paul, who followed Jesus, ended up writing a letter from prison called the Letter to the Philippians, or the Book of Philippians as we now know it. And in there he has a, an incredible section that we've been dropped into, and we've been hanging out there for now. This is the fourth week, and we're going to be there again this week. So if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and turn to the letter to the Philippians that Paul wrote, book of Philippians. It's in the New Testament. And if you don't have a Bible with you, not a problem. There's a Bible around you in our pew. And if you don't know where Philippians is, again, not a problem. Just check it out in the table of contents. It's in the right third of your Bible. Small little letter, only four chapters long, so it is easy to run right by it. It comes after Ephesians. It goes Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians, and then Colossians after that, just for some perspective. And what we've said so far, 
Um, as you are turning there to Philippians chapter 4, we've already covered in this series at the very beginning that um, we were trying to develop a, a habit of nurturing gratitude for God's faithfulness. Because Paul begins in verse 4, if you see it right there in front of you, Philippians chapter 4, he says, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. We looked at that verse, those two verses, and said there's an attitude of gratitude, for lack of a better term, that, that Paul wants us to begin holding to as we even come into anxiety, that there should be a first step of developing gratitude. And then secondly, we said we need to introduce into our worry cycle the concept of prayer immediately. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And I wanted to encourage you that when anxiety begins to hit, that you put right into that worry cycle at the very beginning at least a minute, if not more, but at least a little minute, a prayer. I mean, just pause it and say, God, I'm really anxious. I'm really worried about this. I just need to right now pray. pray. This, is, this is what you need me to do. And Put that into your worry cycle, all right? And then last week, we hung out in verse 7, and here's what verse 7 says again. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And I finished last week by saying this. After you pray, stay. Like, after you pray, stay in that conviction that God can do what he can do. After you pray, remain, linger, stay in this deep conviction that God is sovereign over all and continue to come back to that. Uh, reference the book of Isaiah, that God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. That the peace of God isn't something that in a hard crisis that you're just going to close your eyes, pray, and, and open your eyes and feel awesome. But there is a staying quality to the peace of God, to developing this conviction that God is sovereign, even through the ongoing mess and season of anxiety that you might be dealing with. So after you pray, stay. Now this week, this week, I said at the end of last week, if you are someone who wants to know, well, what can I do? I'm praying is fine, but that's God's work, not mine. But what can I do? Like, do I have a role? Do I play a role in anxiety? Like, can I make it worse by how I respond to it? You know, what can I do? This week is kind of for you. Because this week we're going to actually talk about the power of your thoughts. Now, uh, there's a lot to say about this, but let me, let me begin it this way. There was, a, there was a French philosopher and mathematician named René Descartes. Just go with me for a minute. We're going to put on a little bit of history for a minute. René Descartes came up with a statement. He lived in a time uh, in which there was incredible um, doubt incredible uh, distrust in even the world around him. And people were doubting that, that we even existed. In fact, there was questions philosophically about, you know, do I even exist and how do I know that I exist? How do I know that you exist? Well, of course, I'm just not smart enough to figure that out because I'm like, well, because I'm talking to you. I mean, that's not really philosophical. That's just like you're here and I'm here. But it was deeper than that because have you ever been in a situation where you recount a story differently than your spouse? Like, no, honey, that wasn't how, yeah, it was how, no, it wasn't how, yeah, that was how, no, it wasn't, well, we were both there, that's right, I mean, you're wrong, and I'm right, but I mean, I wouldn't say it that way, but you know, you remember it incorrectly, you just don't remember it right. You ever been in a situation where you remember something clearly with conviction, it happened this way, and your spouse or a friend or whatever is like, were you even in the room? I didn't go that way. I'm like, well, yeah, it did. That you forget, you, you, change the experience, your mind can't necessarily be trusted, and even your perspective on reality can't even be trusted. Neither can mine. 
And so in the middle of that, there was great doubt as to whether we can even trust our assessment of the real world around us. Like, are you really here this morning? Of course, these questions go a little bit beyond me. And here's what Rene Descartes ultimately said. And this is a statement that you know. He said this, I think, therefore, I am. Ooh. Like, okay, whatever, Rene. Like, I'm actually here. That's why I know I exist, but whatever. What he's saying is the reason that I know that I exist is because I can think. And in this context, believe it or not, in this context of great doubt and apprehension, this was actually really wise. And this was actually a, mm, an aha moment for people. And here was the point. His point was this. My basis of human existence is the fact that I can even think about my doubt. I can doubt that I have doubt. I can doubt that this world exists as I think it is. But the fact that I can think requires me to be in existence. Therefore, I think, therefore, I am. And what he laid out was the power of thought to create reality for us. The power of thought is so significant. So I'm going to take Rene Descartes and push him out a little bit and say, not only I think, therefore, I am, but check this out. What I think makes me what I am. Now, I didn't put my name behind that because I kind of stole that from Rene, but what I think makes me what I am. What you think makes you what you are. And I want to press into that a little bit this morning with what Paul says. Now, let me also say that there is, this is low-hanging fruit for criticism this morning. All right, let me just be clear with that. that and I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but motivational speakers today have taken this concept of self-help and self-thought and self coaching, you know, just coach yourself up and be awesome in the world, and taking it and run with it. And some of us react against that and push on that and say that can't be the way it is. Like God has to be the one to create change in you. And Paul also received criticism for what he's about to say and what he's going to write in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 4. So I want to look at that with you. I want to process this. The power of your thoughts and mine and a Christian biblical worldview for the power of how we think. So check it out in verse 8. In the context of worry and anxiety, Paul writes this, finally, brothers. Now notice he's talking to friends, all right? That's why he puts that word brothers in there. And what do you tell brothers? What do you tell friends? Things that you think are good and true for them. So he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about these things. Reason on these things. Put your mind on these things. Train your mind to think about these kinds of things. Now, this, you need to know, what Paul wrote here is rooted deeply in what we call Hellenistic thought. In the Greek world, in the Greek mind, the doctor fills of Paul's age were saying the exact same thing. There was a rhythm to Paul's writing that had an echo of secular philosophy. You see the rhythm in the text. If you're reading the NIV along with me, you see it. Whatever is noble, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, it doesn't say anything about godly. It doesn't say put your mind on God, the Father. It doesn't say anything like that. There's a rhythm to this, and the rhythm is found in Paul's upbringing. He was raised to think this way. His teachers taught the Dr. Phil's, right, the philosophical approach to how to think through life with these same words. And so Paul has been fairly heavily criticized for even writing this verse and putting it in the Bible. Not like the Bible exists and he put it in, but the point is, 
he took what his background was and writes this in here, and people are looking at it like, Paul, this just sounds like, like a Jesus kind of Dr. Phil moment or something. Like, is this even legitimate? This is a really unique verse, the likes of which really are not in the Bible in any other place except maybe for the book of James. Maybe. Maybe for the book of James. But this is unique. And so Paul is writing this, and, and why? You know, why does he write this, and is it legitimate or not? Uh, here's what I want to say. Just because Dr. Phil's of the time in which uh, Paul lived, or the Dr. Phil's of our age, or the motivational speakers that we have, take something and remove God from it and present it to us doesn't mean that it's not true, right? All truth is God's truth. I think the famous theologian Augustine said that. All truth is God. Here's what I mean. If you had an atheist friend and they said, you know what, I think it would be a good idea if we generally took care of the world, like if we were good environmentalists, like that would be a good idea. I wouldn't say, man, that's foolishness. I would say, you're right. Like, you are taking the truth of God's word and applying it. You're not saying it's God's world and that's okay, but it is God's world and you're right. Like, that is true, even though you took God from that. So my Muslim friend or your Muslim friend or my Hindu friend or yours might say, you know what, here's a good idea. We should help our neighbor. Like, we should love our neighbor when they go through hard times. As a Christian, what are you going to say? No way. Like, I'm only going to do that in Jesus' name. Like, you took God out of that. That's not true. No. Just because people take God out of something that's true doesn't make it not true. It just means they took God out of it. And so when Paul writes something about how we think, it doesn't make it not true at all. Like, it, and not at all. In fact, what Paul does is he frames this in the parentheses of what we call as theologians Christology. In verse 7, he says, listen, remember that this is in Christ Jesus. And then he says, whatever is true, noble, praiseworthy, all of these characteristics. He adds two qualifying characteristics at the end. He says, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy. Think about such things. And he takes us and he says, he uses that word excellent, which is the highest word for virtue that he has. And then praiseworthy. And what he means by praiseworthy is praise to God worthy. I'm not just making that up. That is how that word is used in Paul's language. In other words, take all of these things and all the things that are good and true and noble and pure about this world, the things that are worthy of being looked at and saying, man, that's excellent. It's praiseworthy. Take those things and think about them. Think about them. Put your mind on that. Discipline your mind onto it. Paul, I would argue, gets this idea from the Old Testament. He's not flying solo on that. In the book of Proverbs, which he's very familiar with as a Pharisee, his training in that, it says this, Proverbs chapter 12, an anxious heart weighs a man down, but a kind word cheers him up. Isn't that interesting? What that means is this. This heart that was anxious and weighed down is cheered up by what? This is the kind word. Not a change in circumstance, not a donation of a gift, not a new anything. The anxiety is removed because a kind word is given. And what happens when a kind word is given? Your thoughts are changed. And so what you think and what I think determines, to a great degree, what I am and what I become. And this is such a big deal, which is why Paul says in this, this thing, think about such things. And that word, as he finishes it, think about, that word actually is a, a Greek word, and you're going to recognize, I think, some of where this word comes from. It's a Greek word that we would just 
transliterate as logizomai, L-O-G-I, and then C, what did I, where did I just spell? L-O-G-S-E, logic. What he's saying is, this is the most logical thing to do. In fact, this isn't even about faith. Like, this is just about being smart. Like, the smartest way to live, the smartest place to put your thoughts, is on things that are true, noble, pure, honorable. I mean, the things that are excellent or praiseworthy, he's just saying, discipline your mind to come around that and keep it there. Like, that's just smart. Logically, keep doing that. Now, here's what we know. Our world that we live in, our news cycles that we feed into, are driven more by negative news and critical news than positive. Right? And here's where this matters to us. If you call yourself a Christian, and you're kind of dropped into this world in which we live, here's where this matters. Which news spreads faster? The news of a politician who has just created legislation to stop sex trafficking, or the news of a politician who's just fallen into a sex scandal? Which news travels faster? Of course the scandal travels faster. Which news travels faster? The news about the whispers of someone's failure and the the trouble they're having? Or the news about someone creating something amazing to help our community? We know what news travels faster, and here's the problem with that. That we live in a world, and you grow up in a world, you go to school in a world, you go to work in a world, you're in a family in a world, where the, the ugly... The juicy, the terrible, gets the news. And it it competes for the affections of your heart. And here's Paul sitting in prison. He's saying, the logical thing to do is to discipline your mind. In the middle of all the ugliness and all the juicy rumors that you could continue to tell, And all the horrible news that's out there that may be true, the smart thing to do, logically, is to think about what is excellent and praiseworthy. Think about what's true. Think about what's pure. Think about what's honorable. Do that. Put your mind there. And here's why that's important. Carl Menninger, a psychologist, he put it this way. He said, attitudes are more important than facts. Attitudes are more important than facts. Listen, I saw this played out on Friday night at Pequay Valley. It was at the Brave Bowl, or Braves Bowl as they call it. And we were in a moment at the end of that game, and it was uh, 4th and 11 or 4th and 13 or something like that, about a minute and a half to play. The good guys were down by a few points. They needed to score a touchdown, needed to move the chains. Quarterback, Jordan Lapp rolls out to his left, makes a pass, and here's the deal. The facts are it's 4th and 11, good luck with that. You have to get past the chain. Our receiver catches the ball. I think that was Grant Gaynor caught that ball. And I'm standing there not too far on the sideline from him, and here's what I see. He catches the ball. He's being tackled. And his attitude, and I didn't talk to Grant about this, but his attitude in that moment betrays that, man, I have an attitude of I am stopped at, the, at 9 and I need 11. It's going to be two yards shy and the game will be over, but he catches it and then he's tackled and then he lunges. 
I could see the second effort was big, and that second effort gets them over the half-yard line, over the, the, the down marker, and we get a first down and end up winning the game. If that effort isn't there, game over. It's the attitude of 4th and 11 that's more important than the fact of 4th and 11, right? Like when you're in the huddle, no one is just so casual and calculated, hey, it's 4th and 11, you know, why don't you run your out, out, out route? I mean, no, it's 4th and 11, man, we are going to give it everything we have. And if we're tackled, we're going to give that second effort. Attitude is more important than facts. And so what you think about, what you do with your mind, where you place it is so important. And here's what you also know, whispers, whispers speak louder than anything in your heart, don't they? The whispers of the critic who one time years ago told you you would never amount to anything. Those whispers continue to come. The whispers of your parents who may not be satisfied with you. The whispers in your own mind, the doubts of who you are and what you can do. The whispers in your own heart and mind of people who don't like what you do and how you do it. The whispers speak loudly, don't they? And here's Paul in prison saying, come on, come on. You want to have faith? Like you want to believe? You want to push out anxiety? Think about what is true. Think about what is pure. Think about what is noble. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy. Logic these things. It's just as smart to do this. I want to... I want to finish in a light way, if I can. Sometimes I can get a little heavier and stay in a heavier tone. I want to go simple here for a minute. I want to go with A.A. Milne and Winnie the Pooh. Got any Winnie the Pooh fans around? A.A. Milne, a great writer and uh, really captured a lot uh, for us. Uh, many of you um, are parents or have been parents. Um, some of you will become parents at some point in your life. Uh, and all of us, I think, have some exposure to Winnie the Pooh and friends. Now, a. A. Milne um, created different characters within his story that help us think through this reality. So when I read Winnie the Pooh to my children, I don't anymore, but when they were younger, um, you know, there are certain characters, all the characters we reflect on, and all are helpful for life, but only some characters do I really want my kids to be like. So there's Eeyore, okay? Here's Eeyore. Here's his philosophy. It's snowing still and freezing. However, we haven't had an earthquake lately. Fair enough, Eeyore. That's good. Get it? We all know Eeyore's in our life. That's fair. Then there's Piglet. Promise me you'll always remember you're braver than you believe, and stronger than you seem, and smarter than you think. Little Piglet. Now, if I read a book to my kids and both of these quotes are in it, who am I going to encourage my kids to be like? Because our thoughts matter. What I encourage my kids to think about creates their realities. Piglet, the small character with the biggest heart in A.A. Milne's writing, jammed full of adventure and excitement. Now for some of us, we just lean into Eeyoreism. We just lean into that. Maybe our parents are like that. I don't know. So that's you. That's okay. Let's just acknowledge that. And let's just say it might be a little bit harder, but it doesn't make it less true to logically think about these things. It's still going to be work. But think about Think about what's excellent and praiseworthy. 
Now, if you're a piglet, we love you, but we can also be afraid of you because you're so energetic. You're so hopeful. Everything is great for you. But for many of us, we fall into the Winnie the Pooh category. (laughs) And I love the interaction of Pooh and Piglet one day when Pooh uh, and Piglet are talking and and Piglet says, "Um, when you wake up in the morning, Pooh, what's the first thing you say to yourself? What's for breakfast, said Pooh. What do you say, Piglet? I say, I wonder what's going to happen exciting today, said Piglet. Pooh nodded thoughtfully. It's the same thing. And sometimes that's okay. Right? Like sometimes, if breakfast is the most excellent and praiseworthy thing that you can think about, it is better than waiting for an earthquake to hit. Right? Like, if that's all it is, bring that. You don't need to take monstrous steps to become piglet. But Paul is saying, this is the smart way to live your life. Think about. Put your mind on the things that are excellent and praiseworthy. And as a Christian, if you're a Christian, here's where this is awesome. If you're a Christian, the thing that even started this whole thing in the first place is the most excellent moment, I believe, in the history of humanity. The most praiseworthy moment in the history of humanity, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the God-man Jesus goes to the grave and comes back to life, what is more excellent and praiseworthy than that kind of hope? It represents redemption. It represents hope for all. It represents a future that you didn't think was even possible. And so every now and then in the rhythm of the Christian church, we get to celebrate what we call communion. This morning is that time for us. And that communion celebration for us is going to be a time this morning where I want to invite you again to put your thoughts back on what is most excellent and praiseworthy. That of all the things that kind of elbow in and want to nudge in for worry in your life, I want to encourage you this morning to bring those thoughts back to what is true, what is noble, what is honorable, what is right and just and good. The things that are excellent and praiseworthy. And may our communion this morning, where we get to come around to think again about Jesus' death and resurrection for us, may this kind of be the fountainhead of hope for you. That you can hope again, right? That you can think again that that which seems impossible might actually be 